I don't know if you've noticed, but the entire Bible, the entire Bible has one message. That's quite a remarkable thing because something like the Bible should not be able to have one message. It's written by I don't know how many people over I don't know how many years, thousands of years in all different kinds of cultures and in many different languages. And they each of the authors had something he was concerned about that he was writing about. And yet, the whole thing has a single message. We shouldn't be able to take a library of documents like the Bible in the way it was produced we shouldn't even be able to force a single message onto it. But the single message of the Bible doesn't require any force. It flows straight out of the text itself. And the Bible is a Christmas story. The whole Bible is the story of the incarnate Son of God. The eternal Son of God becoming human. And this is in the first chapter of the Bible when God says to God, the one God conversing among the triune persons of God, says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And God begins that task right away, creating Adam. But he actually fulfills that task when Jesus is conceived by the Spirit in Mary when the Son of God becomes fully human. I like to look at parts of the Bible and think about how is that part of the Christmas story, the story of the incarnation. The incarnation is the single most important thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity. Christmas changes everything. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a little Christmas passage in the book of Philippians chapter 2, where you might not expect to encounter a Christmas passage, but I'm just going to read it to you. It's Philippians chapter 2, and I guess I'll start around verse 5 where the apostle writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. 
You might have read this text in the book of Philippians and never noticed that it was about the birth of Jesus. But it is. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, that means a human, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of of God the Father. You could call that text of Scripture something like a summary of the Bible. If you ask the question, what is the Bible about? This text of Scripture answers that question with clarity and completely. But this story, this, well, it's an unexpected Christmas story. It was unexpected by the very people it was predicted for. You know, the Old Testament, all written before the birth of Christ, tells us that the birth of Christ is going to happen. He even names the place, that text we read earlier. You know, when the wise men came <laughs> and they said, hey, we've seen this star, there's supposed to be a king of the Jews. You've got to wonder how they even knew. But there's supposed to be a new king of the Jews. We saw the star. Here we are. Where is he? And Herod got his people together and said, what are they talking about? And they said, well... Where he is is probably Bethlehem if he's around because right here in the book of Micah, that text we read earlier, it says that the Messiah, that king, that it will come, that will rule, that king is going to arrive in Bethlehem. This little podunk town in the middle of the wilderness, David's country retreat, David's birthplace, original place. You see, David's the prototype Messiah, the king, the anointed king, the chosen king, and he comes from there. So the eternal king also comes from there and is one of David's descendants. Well, anyway, all these people, they, you know, they read the story of the king in the old, they all expected this guy to come in some sort of glorious way. Like the king, he's promised in the Old Testament, and he's promised that he will come and he will deliver Israel from all its oppressors, and he will rule in glory and strength, as we read in Micah. So what we get, the actual thing that happens, was kind of unexpected, though 
it didn't need to be unexpected because the Old Testament also tells us that this king will suffer and that he will suffer for the sins of his people, even that he will die and be raised. All of that can be found in the pages of the Old Testament. What's unexpected is that God, the eternal Son, would do what we read here, emptied himself. He emptied himself being born. This is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. How does the eternal God become a man? And what exactly does it mean that he emptied himself? And I can't really fully explain that to you. We don't actually know. We don't really get it, yet we know it to be true. He emptied himself, and I think what that means is he set aside his own independent use of his divinity, his deity, his godness, if you will. He set that aside to be born a man. And when he lived as a man, he lived as a man. And he lived in faith in God. He trusted in the Father. And I think the best place you can read about this is probably in the book of John. And the Father gives the man Jesus, the eternal Son made man, the Spirit without measure. So he walks in the Spirit perfectly at all times. So he says, I never do anything except what the Father tells me. I never say anything except what he says. I'm always a perfect reflection of the person of God in a human being. That is amazing. That is the most important thing that has ever happened. He emptied himself. Now, I would like to notice some things about the circumstances in which he was born because we learn something about our God when we look at the humble situation of his birth. Even the announcement, first of all, to Zechariah and Elizabeth the parents of John the Baptist, the great prophet, the greatest of all the prophets of the Old Covenant is John the Baptist. And he's born to who? Zechariah. You know how we're introduced to Zechariah in the book of Luke? There was a priest. There was a priest. Nobody would know the name of Zechariah. Nobody did know the, the name of Zechariah. Zechariah is not the high priest. Zechariah is not even an important priest. He just happens to be working there in the temple one day because it's his turn. That's what the Scripture says. It was his turn, so there he was. He's old. He's unknown, and he's childless. And in the Jewish culture, childless 
is an indication of, well, whatever the opposite of blessing is. The angel, Gabriel, appears to Zechariah and says, announces to him that he is going to be the father of a son, and this son is going to be the prophet, the second Elijah, if you will, the, the second great prophet of the Old Testament era, and he will announce the preparation of the way of the King of Kings, Messiah, the Lord of Lords, God himself, come to us. Now, Zechariah is described in this text and his wife Elizabeth as righteous before God. But <laughs> when the angel appears to him, and he knows it's an angel because he's at first very afraid, and makes this announcement to him, Zechariah says, well, how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure? <laughs> and I think uh, this, the story as it's in the text indicates something like surprise on the part of Gabriel, the angel. So he makes this great announcement. I mean, this is like the best news a person could get. And he makes this great announcement, and Zechariah says, yeah, how do I know you're, this is real? He gives this skeptical response, and <laughs> this is the answer. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. What do you mean, how can I be sure? That's how I read that. He says, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words. So Zechariah is a faithful person, but he also has a moment of unfaithful here. Is what, they're both old. It's impossible for them to have children. They've never had children, but they do have a child. The second announcement comes to Mary. Mary has a different response. She doesn't say, how can I be sure you're telling me the truth? She says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. How's this going to happen? And the angel explains it, and she says, let this be according to your word. So she has a more faithful response. But who is Mary? You know, now we know who Mary is. Now... We might, we might even in the Christian church refer to her as the mother of God. We know who Mary is, and Mary is one of the most important people because she is the mother of Jesus. But when this meeting took place, she was nobody. Think about where she lived. She lives in, well, the outback. Galilee, Nazareth, a no place, a literal no place.
Then we think about where Jesus was born, in Bethlehem, another no place. And it just so happened that Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because of this tax situation, and so they had to go, and they went, and then they have no place to stay, and no one takes them in, and they end up, Mary has this baby in the backyard of some inn, some place that should have had a place for them to stay but didn't, and in a shed where the animals are fed, and the crib is the box that we feed the animals from. This is like a filthy, dark, dirty place. It's no place for a baby. It is the lowest possible place to be born. I don't think that's an accident. That Jesus is born to this family of nobodies in, from no place in another no place that they had to go to to pay their taxes, and then gets put in a crib that is not a crib. It is th- as low as possible. Then, the next announcement. Who's that to? The shepherds. The shepherds. Wait a second now. Shepherds. <laughs> now, shepherds have this sort of odd reputation because, you know, David was a shepherd. Do you know that that's why it was a surprise that God had chosen him to be king? Because Samuel was sent to Jesse, and Jesse went through all his very successful, tall, handsome sons. None of them, Samuel says, there's got to be another one. And they didn't even think about calling upon David because he's a kid, and he's the one tasked with watching sheep. And so when Samuel says, there's got to be another one, they say, well, yeah, but, you know, Not really. Not really because he's the shepherd boy and God chooses this one, this one who had a heart, but this one who all he was was a kid watching sheep. And all you've got out there on the hillside next to Bethlehem is a bunch of kids watching sheep. Nobody. They are at the lowest Stratus of the society we're talking about here. They are camping out because it's their job. They're not doing it for fun. They probably don't even own the sheep they're watching. But these are the people who receive Glory to God in the highest and on peace, goodwill toward men. (laughs) Who see the army of the angelic host proclaiming the birth of the King of Kings. 
This does not happen for Herod in Jerusalem. It happens in front of these shepherd boys on the hillside in the country in a no place to nobodies. That is not an accident. Then, after Jesus is born, you have an announcement to Simeon and Anna, another couple of nobodies that have to be introduced like this. There was a guy by the name of Simeon. The Lord had told him he wouldn't die before he saw the Messiah. So the Lord brings him to the temple. He's actually the guy that circumcised Jesus. What a position of privilege. But this was... Who's the guy that circumcises the king of Israel? Some guy named Simeon. And then there's a prophetess, Anna, also an old lady. Nobody paid any attention to her, even though she's a prophetess. But you could read the Old Testament, and you, could be, you would be reading a history of God choosing Nobody. Abraham, <laughs> the father of all faith, Abraham is nobody. Now he's kind of a rich guy, but he's nobody. And he has no children, and he has an old wife who can't have children. They can't have children. This is the father of the nation of Israel. This is the one that God makes a kingdom that God makes a nation from a person who can't have children. That's not an accident. God doesn't just choose Israel. God makes Israel out of nothing. He chooses Jacob. Look, he's got, two, he's got a couple of options here, Jacob and Esau. Do you know the story of Jacob and Esau? They're twins. Esau is actually the older one by a couple of minutes. Here's the thing about every one of us. None of us would choose Jacob. Not a single one. Nobody would choose Jacob. Jacob's own father did not choose Jacob. His mom liked him. But Jacob was a conniving, sneaky cheater, a con artist. His, his name means usurper. Because when he was born, he was grabbing onto his brother's heel like he was trying to get out first. Nobody would choose Jacob, but God did. The scripture says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's God speaking. Not an accident. Moses. <laughs> Moses. The lawgiver. The constitutional father of the nation of Israel. Moses. Was an 80-year-old refugee and, well, not just a refugee, a fugitive. Because he had committed murder. So what's he doing when God calls him? Oh, he was watching sheep. Hmm, there's a bit of a trend. Moses is a, is a, and 
He's not a boy. He's an old man watching sheep because he can't do any better than that. And he's been, he's been exiled from the nation in which he was an important individual, like the, almost the son of the Pharaoh, and where God calls him out from the wilderness, not an accident. None of us would have picked Moses for that job. Nobody would pick Moses for that job. Which is why God did. Then we get to David, and we've already talked about that. Nobody would have picked David to be the king of Israel, except God. Well, and then let's think about the apostles. Jesus says, you didn't tell them, you didn't choose me, I chose you. What an oddball assortment of characters that is. <clears throat> Nobody important in that whole list. Tax collector. Uh, oh, and then there's the late-coming Apostle Paul, also an accessory to murder, out to kill people who follow Jesus. We need to wipe this off the face of the earth. God chose him. It's not an accident. He calls himself the least of all the apostles, he calls himself the chief of sinners. And Paul knew himself to be the sort of sinner that wrapped his sinful heart in righteous deeds. So he says in the, later on in the book of Philippians, nobody could criticize me. If you were talking about keeping the law of Moses or the law of Israel, blameless. Tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. And what he says about that status when he writes the book of Philippians is garbage is what that was. Garbage, all my righteous deeds, just like the prophet said, filthy rags in the presence of God. Garbage. I don't want to stand before God with any righteousness of my own, he says, but the righteousness which comes from God by faith in Christ. The Bible is a long list of people none of us would pick, but God did. And he tells us why. He tells us why. We sang that song, Why Me? <laughs> I think, yeah, why me? Why me? Why am I the recipient of God's grace in Christ? Why did the Spirit open my eyes to see the truth of the person of Jesus so that I would trust in Him and receive His righteousness imputed to me? 
Well, here's the thing. God has never chosen anyone for their own merit. Never happened. Because how would any of us impress him? Never has never happened with the sole exception of Jesus. Why me? Do you imagine yourself worthy? Do you imagine yourself ever being worthy of God's selection? Well, I would tell you this. The Bible makes it clear. God does not choose the worthy, but the unworthy. He emptied himself and was born. And then, and then, as a man, he humbled himself. We read this in Philippians. We read, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. By becoming obedient. You can read about this at the end of Luke chapter 2. This is after, this is when Jesus was 12 years old, after the story where he's in the temple and he's having this scholarly conversation. <laughs> 12 year old boy having a scholarly conversation with the priests and scribes and folks, this, the scholars. They're all kind of like, who is this kid? Because he is nobody. He's from Nazareth for crying out loud. They're all standing around going, who is this kid? Well, after that, the Scripture says, He went down with them, that is with Mary and Joseph, and came to Nazareth and was submitted to them. And His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, that is, He got taller, and in favor with God and man. When Jesus became a man, he became a real person who had to grow up. He went to school. He learned to read. He submitted himself to his parents because for every day of his life, he was perfectly obedient to God and to the law of God, and the law of God says, children, obey your parents. And so he submitted himself to his parents. Think about this. When Jesus and his parents disagreed, who was right? You've had the experience probably when your parents were wrong and you could tell. It is extremely difficult to obey them under those conditions Jesus did. He was obedient to the law of God. He was obedient 
to God. And we read this here in the text of uh, Philippians, being found in appearance, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, death on a cross. As a man, Jesus humbled himself. He was born at the bottom of the human society of his day. And he stayed there. And he stepped down. His brothers at one time suggested to him that he needed to head on up to Jerusalem because, you know, you're never going to accomplish what you want. They're all about him pursuing the success. And, you know, he turns that down. It's not my time, he says. But he was humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. Because his death is the sacrifice for our sin. His death is what restores the rest of humanity to fellowship with God. His death makes our life possible. And that was the plan since before creation. But not just any death, the death of the cross. Now sometimes we might be tempted to think that this emphasis about the death of the cross is about what kind of horrible death it is to be crucified. Well, that certainly is true. That is a horrible way to die. It was designed on purpose through many years of experimentation to be an especially horrible way to die. But I don't think that's the point here when he says even death on a cross. I don't think it's about the pain. I think it's about the shame. Among all of the ways to die, this is the lowest. There's no way to die below this way. To die under the sentence of a crime. Imposed by the Roman emperor. That person that the Messiah is supposed to overthrow. Here's the thing about Jesus when he obediently humbles himself all the way to the cross. When he dies on the cross, he has 100% humbled himself. He is below everyone. He is as low as possible. At the same time, in his death, he must 100% trust 
trust himself to God. He knows the plan. The Scripture says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knows the plan is he will die and he will be raised. He announced it himself before it happened. On the third day, I will rise. He knows the plan. But it is a plan of utter dependence upon the Father. He completely abandons himself to God in his death. This is an unexpected turn of events. The eternal Son made flesh dies. And there we are at the bottom. Therefore, the text says, God has highly exalted him. This is stated in this sort of perfect tense. I think it's an aorist tense, but it's a thing that has happened. God has done this. It has occurred. He is now exalted. Because God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So he has gone from last, literally last, to above all. Oh, you know, he said that. If you want to be first, you put yourself last. And that is exactly what he did. He wasn't just talking to us. He said, if you want to have your life, you lose it. And that is exactly what he did. If you abandon yourself to God, that's, that's when you become alive. And God has raised him from the dead. And God has, he has ascended into heaven, and he is now the man Jesus, the flesh and blood human being Jesus, is the one now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, as we read last week. That's what's new. He was always highly exalted, and he was always the Son of God, has always been the name above all names. He's always been Lord. He's God Almighty, eternally so. So who has been promoted? The man has. Jesus, the one who is lying in the manger, whose whole life was a series of downward steps of humility and even humiliation. But he has been raised. He has ascended. He has been crowned. King of kings and Lord of lords, one of us is now in that position. And so he has been given the name above all names. Jesus Christ is Lord and every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Eventually, every, every person ever made will recognize the lordship of that baby in the manger. That nobody. That nobody who was the biggest somebody ever, who is actually the creator of his own parents, 
I want to just conclude by saying this, making this observation for you, the way up is down. The way up is down. You can read about this in James, where he says, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So, humble yourself and let God exalt you. So, James is applying the way Jesus lived to all of us. Humble yourself, let God exalt you. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourself, let God exalt you. In that song that Mary sings after the angelic announcement, the Magnificat, we call it. In that song that Mary sings in that moment, she talks about how God will take down the mighty and exalt the weak and the poor. Jesus said, if you want to have your life, lose it. How do we do that? Well, I think we do that by giving it to him. And letting him lead wherever he leads. And where he will lead is a life of humble grace. Where he will lead is a life that is led not for one's own sake but for the sake of the others. You can let go of your rights. For the sake of grace. You're allowed. And Jesus demonstrates that is best. It's a good thing for us that Jesus didn't cling to his rights, that he did not see equality with God as a thing to be grasped, that he held tightly to. He let go of it. He did not hang on to his rights. He let go of his rights. Well, so can you. You know, one of the most challenging times when you can do this is when the people around you are less than you need them to be. You know, everyone is less than the rest of us need them to be. And when you bump into that, you can do what Jesus did, step down. Step down. This is the opposite of demanding. The way up is down. The way to be with Christ is to step down. To not cling to your own importance. To humble yourself. This is the story of Christmas. It's the story of our salvation. It's the story of how by handing ourselves to Christ, we are restored to fellowship with the living God we have all the status. And we are called to live in that status the same way he did, which is to express the freedom of it in loving the people around us.
I don't need you to take care of me because I am the child of God. And so I can live sacrificially for your benefit because I have everything I need in him. The great step down, the Christmas story of the whole Bible, is how Jesus exhibits this to us and leads us in exhibiting it to one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing grace. Thank you for the life of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, we would be so full of the goodness of your grace that we would exhibit the same thing that Jesus did. That we would become a support to the people around us that we would become expressions of your love in their lives, that we would become people who live sacrificially for the benefit of people around us, that we would become encouraging, gracious, loving Christians, followers of that baby in the manger. We pray these things in his name and by his spirit. Amen.